So Dr. House is uh, presenting Grand Rounds this morning. We all know uh, Dr. Samantha House, who we were thrilled, as I wrote in the letter in 2011, to recruit back to Dartmouth for our residency program here at Chad. A 2005 graduate of Boston University, she had already received her master's in public health from what was known as the Center for Evaluative Clinical Sciences, now known as TDI, where she currently teaches uh, with Dr. Goodman, uh, among others. She's been very active at TDI. We know her as our um, associate program director for the pediatric residency and pediatric hospitalist, former chief resident. Uh, but during her residency, many of you may not quite realize that she contributed mightily and was a co-editor on the first uh, Dartmouth Atlas of Children's Healthcare in Northern New England, uh, written with doctors uh, Goodman and uh, Ralston, among others. Two of her presentations that were sort of research associated with that project were uh, recognized at PAS. One got a first prize at the Eastern Society for Pediatric Research meeting, uh, and she has had publications in pediatrics and general pediatrics stemming from that and other work. She has um, therefore also been identified in, as serving as an uh, academic pediatric association research scholar and has served as the New Hampshire Pediatric Improvement Partnership Medical Director. So um, up to lots of good that some of you may not be aware of in addition to her hospitalist work. and. Um, we know she's going to do just as good a job on this presentation as she does all the time, even though she is nervous. So give her a warm welcome. Thanks, Keith. Can you can everyone hear me in the back? Yeah. Okay. Um, welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year, although apparently I haven't embraced 2018 yet. Sorry about that. <laughs> Thanks especially to Amy Beaton, who is holding off on delivering her baby so that she can watch my grand round. So I really appreciate that. Um, this morning, I'm going to be talking about the quality of pediatric quality measurement. And as I develop this talk, I realize this title is a little bit of a misnomer because we'll spend about the first half of the talk um, sort of talking more generally about the concept of quality measurement and how it's evolved over time. And then during the second half, we'll get a little more specific into pediatric quality measurement. I have nothing to disclose. And so my objectives for today, as I've sort of alluded to already, first we'll review the trends in healthcare that have led to an intense focus on quality measurement and sort of talk about how we got to where we are in this era of, of really sort of heavily focusing on measurement. Um, and then describe the current state of quality measurement in pediatrics. And we'll do that through the lens of a study that Sean and I did with a couple of other hospitalist health services colleagues, really trying to figure out what we're measuring in, in the sort of realm of pediatrics. And then I will close by hopefully proposing some ideas for improving quality measurement moving forward. And that's um, a little bit of a, a sort of tip off to the fact that I think that we actually can, there's a lot of room to improve what we're doing right now in quality measurement. So before we talk about quality measurement, we need to pause for a second and talk about quality. And I think most people in the audience have seen either this exact slide or a figure very similar to this. Um, and this really just sort of shows the underperformance of the United States healthcare system. So along the x-axis here, you see health expenditure per capita. On the y-axis, you see life expectancy at birth. Uh, I know it's hard to see the individual countries represented by the gray lines in the top left corner, but those are sort of other Western or um, developed countries, rather. And you see that the United States is a pretty far outlier in terms of the amount of money we're spending and sort of not getting um, high quality health care as a result of that. 
This is a slide that's not well cited because it's been passed around quite a bit and we don't know exactly where it originated, but uh, the axes here are flipped. So along the x-axis you see life expectancy here and on the y-axis you see cost. You see a, a bunch of red dots that represent individual countries clustered in kind of the bottom left portion of the figure. Uh, if you go straight up, you see a single red dot that represents where the United States stands now. So you can clearly here see that we're an outlier again. Uh, but the point of this slide is really to show that if you if you create a trend line and if the a trend line and if the United States got the same return on investment that other countries get for their healthcare dollars, we should be living until we're 96 years of age. And that's certainly not happening in our country. Uh, I think when we see data like this, it makes us feel very sad. My husband told me I couldn't use an emoji in Grant Rounds, but I reminded him that I'm a millennial, and so that is allowed. Um, so I think we feel sad, and particularly as providers, we, I, I feel personally as a provider that in my day-to-day, -day, it's, it's pretty hard for me to think about how I can impact a problem that is this big. I have talked to a lot of providers about kind of the concept of quality measurement, which really has developed over the last 30 years as a way to try to figure out where the problems in healthcare are and start to more specifically address some of those problems. And for the most part, I think providers feel largely in the dark about what's going on in terms of quality measurement and, and data. Uh, I gave a presentation similar to this one at the Mount Washington last year. I told Hillary I was going to embarrass her this morning. For moral support, Hillary sat through that presentation twice in a row. And so, Hillary, if you have other things to do this morning, you're allowed to leave. She knows this. <laughs> she knows it well. But I gave the, this presentation to a group of providers, and mostly the providers said, you know, I know my practice is submitting data on quality measures. I have no idea what's being measured within my practice, and I have no idea how I'm doing. So I'm not getting the data. If I am getting the data, I don't trust the data. There are problems with the data. And so I think for this whole concept of measurement to be effective in creating change, we really need to, to sort of improve that link. Um, that's kind of one of the take-homes from today's talk, and so I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit, uh, but I wanted to kind of frame the talk with that, and that's really why I want to talk about this in a group of people who's largely sort of frontline clinical providers. So we'll start with a little bit of background and history. Before we sort of get into the timeline of quality measurement, we have to define quality measurement. And on the surface, I think this seems very straightforward. So quality measures are individual metrics, so numerators and denominators, sort of these discrete, mathematical, easy to understand pieces of information that are supposed to represent the quality of healthcare and give us a sense of, again, where we can improve. When you start looking up definition, definitions for quality measurement, what you find is actually much more complex. So this was taken from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, uh, and I'll read through it just because I think it's a little more dramatic that way. But uh, quality measures are tools that help us measure or quantify healthcare processes, outcomes, patient perceptions, and organizational structure and or systems that are associated with the ability to provide high quality healthcare and or that relate to one or more quality goals for healthcare. These goals include effective, safe, efficient, patient-centered, equitable, and timely care. So I had to pause like two or three times as I was reading through that to catch my breath. And I'm pretty well known for run-on sentences, I would say, but this, this single sentence has two and or clauses. And so that's a lot. And I put this up just to represent the complexity of what we're trying to do here. Uh, I think it's important to focus in on the six domains that are listed on the bottom here. 
Keith alluded to these domains in his talk last week, and these, these domains are sort of the domains that have been set out by the Institute of Medicine as sort of domains to focus on as we think about improving healthcare. But the, the main point of this is that this is a complex process, and we're trying to measure a lot of different things across healthcare, and that is not an easy task. So how did we get to this point where we're so focused? I've already sort of shown you slides about quality, and so we've known that quality has been a problem in U.S. healthcare for the last few decades. But, but sort of how did we start to fixate so much on measurement? And when I think through this timeline, I like to reference a study that was written by, that was published by Dr. Don Berwick, who I think most people in the audience are familiar with. He's best known as a former administrator for CMS. Um, he's also been the president and CEO of for the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He gave Geisel commencement last year, so if you haven't looked, listened to that or read that, I would recommend doing so. He's also a pediatrician, so that's important. Um, but he's really been a leader in developing quality measurement and thinking about healthcare reform. And he published this nice article in JAMA in 2016 that sort of lays out a timeline walking us through what's happened in healthcare and particularly in healthcare in the United States. He doesn't label these individual eras, so I've kind of taken the liberty to do that. Um, and he doesn't create distinct time blocks, so there's a little bit of overlap between the three eras, but we'll sort of start at era one, which I have labeled ascendancy. So this really goes back to sort of the formation of medicine in the days of Hippocrates and is known by some as the golden age, probably for some people in the audience, just the good old days when we were not quite so focused on measurement and regulation. And the ruling principles of this age were that medicine is noble and beneficent, that it will self-regulate, so we're going into medicine to help people and we don't actually need people to sort of supervise us. And society concedes the profession the authority to judge its own work. So medicine was not really held to the same level of standards or sort of organizational structure as other fields were. Um, and this really continued sort of throughout the, the early 20th century. This is a 1934 AMA House of Delegates resolution that I think just really solidifies this concept of how people were feeling about healthcare. So all features of medical service in any method of medical practice should be under the control of the profession. No other, no other body or individual is legally or educationally equipped to exercise such control. Um, and I was putting these slides together right around the time of the Joint Commission visit as we were all trying to remember how long it takes for cleanser to dry on hard surfaces and hiding all our Christmas decorations. Um, and obviously there's a contrast there, right? So, so we're in a different age of medicine now where regulation really prevails. So what happened and how did we, how did we get to this current era? The 20th century was really sort of dominated by a bunch of events that eroded the trust of the public in the medical profession. And there were a lot of things, I can't go through everything that happened in the, in the 20th century to do this, um, but, but here's a few examples. So in 1910, we saw the publication of the Flexner Report, which really called into question all of medical education, caused the shutdown of a lot of different medical schools, and I think led people to sort of question how people had gotten to be practicing physicians. As the sort of popular news media picked up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there were increasing reports about doctors engaging in unethical behavior. Um, a lot of these were around payment. So this particular article was about physicians referring patients to their friends to do unnecessary procedures and then getting kickbacks from those friends for those referrals. And that was a concept called double payment. And there was a lot that came out in that time, time period about how, you know, we may, be, we may be doing things that really are unethical. 
And then we have to put an Atlas slide up because here we are at Dartmouth. So um, Jack Weinberg started his work on variation really in the late 1960s and over the following um, many decades came the development of the Dartmouth Atlas. This is a map from the 1996 publication. And so people started to realize that we weren't all practicing the same way and that probably there were some important outcomes related to differences in practice. And so people became more interested in sort of saying, how can we standardize and, and how are we, um, how can we improve healthcare? The 20th century was sort of capped off initially with this um, Institute of Medicine sorry, this is, yeah, Institute of Medicine publication in 1999 called To Air is Human. So many of you are probably familiar with this report. It was really sort of a, an important report in um, letting us know that healthcare was very imperfect. And in To Air is Human, uh, the IOM suggested that 2 to 4% of all deaths were related to the medical field in some way, so medical errors or sort of other problems in medicine. And then they followed this up in 2001 with Crossing the Quality Chasm, which was a report that really um, called for change, essentially, and set up the six domains that I referred to in the initial definition slide and said, hey, we really need to take action and start to improve healthcare. So that brings us to era two, which is our present era, which I have called accountability. And this era is um, very well known for sort of scrutiny and measurement and making sure we're keeping very careful track of what's happening in healthcare. There's this concept of transparency where we want to know how uh, we are performing against others. We want our patients to understand how individual providers or systems are performing. And we don't want this to be hidden. We want all of that to be sort of out and public. And then came this idea of sort of sticks and carrots, rewards and punishment and pay for performance. And we'll talk a little bit more about this concept as we start to talk about value-based payment, but we started to attach more worth to quality performance and started to think about whether we could actually reward providers for providing good quality care um, and disincentivize poor quality care. And this led to the rapid development of quality measures because to operationalize any of these things, you need some discrete sort of way to measure the way that healthcare is being delivered. Quality measures actually kind of were um, discussed or brought up much earlier than the start of the 21st century. So this is a picture of Avedis Donabedian, uh, who was a Lebanese physician who came and got his MPH at Harvard and then became a pretty famous health services researcher at the University of Michigan. And he published a paper in 1966 called Evaluating the Quality of Medical Care, where he laid out a structure for developing quality measurements and quality measures. And we'll talk through that structure a little bit more as we get into the pediatric literature. Um, but he was really sort of seen as the father of quality measurement. And after he published this paper, there was kind of a, a rapid evolution of an interest in quality measurement. So in the 1970s and 1980s, we saw just an increasing interest, lots of different publications by lots of different authors looking at how we can improve the measurement of quality, why this is important, why we need to be doing it. In 1986, the Joint Commission developed a measure set, which is largely sort of thought to be the first measure set. Um, created and endorsed by a national organization. In 1989, we saw the formation of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which had a different name at that point in time, but has been a really big agency in pushing quality measurement. Similarly, in 1990, we saw the formation of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, another really important organization in thinking about how to measure healthcare. And then in the 1990s and 2000s, more national organizations really got on board with this idea of measuring and started thinking about how we can use measures. 
Up until this point, the measurement of healthcare was really done largely for improvement and was done on a voluntary basis. So most people were submitting data about their practice because they wanted to be involved in this, because they cared about improvement. But at that point, people were not being paid for their performance. And it was in 2010, we saw the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and there's been a lot of legislation over the past decade that really supports a shift in terms of using quality measurement to figure out how to pay people. And so that is largely known as value-based payment. The idea being, again, as I've sort of stated, that if, if you're performing well on your quality measures, then you should be able to get some extra bonus payments. And if you're not performing well, then you may either not get paid or, um, or just not be able to get those types of bonus payments. We won't go through this whole alphabet soup here in detail, partially because a lot of these programs relate primarily to adults, also because there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in what's going to happen to any of these programs, thanks to our current administration. Um, and I, I can't even speculate on sort of where we're headed with all of these things right now. But I think it's important to see that over the past decade, there was a lot going on in, in kind of the legislative, legislative venue to support value-based payment. So how are we doing with all this? So we've been starting to measure quality for 30 years. Um, we've been sort of progressing in how important this concept is. How is that impacting healthcare? So this is a slide that shows healthcare spending as percent of our GDP or gross domestic product. On the x-axis here, you'll see years, and on the y-axis, you see percentage. You see there's a whole bunch of colorful, pretty lines sort of towards the middle, and then you see the United States in this dark black storm cloud line at the top. Um, we started focusing on measuring quality here in the late 80s. Again, these this was sort of the inception of even thinking about quality measurement, so it's not that it rapidly came into law or that we immediately developed value-based payment programs from there, but that's just to kind of give you a sense of when we decided this was important. And then in 2010, we again saw the passage of the ACA. And so you could make an argument that we've seen a little bit of leveling in um, increases in costs since 2010, but I would say we've seen leveling before, and it doesn't necessarily suggest that we're not going to see more increases. We're projected to be close to 20% of our GDP by the year 2020. So there are still projections that we'll see increases in cost. And, and I would also say that um, regardless of whether we're leveling, there's a lot of space between our country and all these other countries down in the middle. So what we really need to see is a decrease in that line. And we certainly haven't seen any trend toward a decrease. So many people have sort of started to key in on the fact that um, this cost increase is happening in spite of quality measurement. Some people have posited that it's actually directly related to measuring quality. So this is a publication that came out in Health Affairs in 2016 that estimated that we're spending upwards of $15 billion a year on collecting quality data and on the infrastructure and manpower it's taking to sort of collect this information. And I think if, if we could say, well, we're spending $15 billion to measure quality and then we're saving $30 billion by improving quality, then that would be a really happy story. Um, unfortunately, that's not quite the way the story goes. So when we start to think about how this is impacting quality, um, this is a really hard question to answer. So it takes a long time to gather enough information about what we're doing in healthcare to decide if it's really making a big difference. But one of, the, one of the areas that people have started to measure over the last five to 10 years is the success of accountable care organizations. And I think everyone had to take an e-learning about accountable care organizations, so you all know exactly what those are. Um, but 
they really are sort of individual healthcare organizations that take responsibility for the health of a population, get paid based on quality, and are really, really reliant on quality measurement as sort of the source of their, their payment programs. Um, there are, there's some data out about early ACO performance that I'll walk through here quickly. This is mostly related to the adult population, and I think overall the jury is really still out about how successful ACOs can be or will be in the future. This is a paper that was written by McWilliams et al. and was published in JAMA in 2013, evaluating one of the earliest ACOs, which was in Massachusetts in the Blue Cross Blue Shield system. Um, and it's a busy slide. Where's my pointer? It's a busy slide. So I'll draw your attention first to the fact that um, on the left-hand column here are the measures that they were looking at specifically. Again, these are all very specific adult measures, and there are only a few measures that they looked at. The first one is admission rate for ambulatory care-sensitive conditions and then 30-day readmission. So these are sort of some global markers, and then they looked at screening mammography. They compared the group that was in an ACO, an alternate payment model, a value-based payment model, to a control group. And for the first three measures, you can see p-values for year one and year two over in the right-hand column, and you can see that they really didn't demonstrate any improvement in quality across those measures. Um, they did demonstrate some improvement in their rates of LDL testing, both among adults who have diabetes and adults who are at risk for cardiovascular disease. So that was good. Um, I'll point out here that testing LDL does not necessarily improve LDL, and that's an important concept that we will continue to focus on as we go along. Uh, and then they were also able to demonstrate some improvement in their retinal examinations among individuals with diabetes. I think this is sort of interesting because you saw an improvement in year one that then was not sustained over into the second year of the ACL. And there are some other studies that would suggest that when you start this process, you may see some initial improvement, but it's very difficult to sustain that improvement. This same research group published this article in 2016 in the New England Journal and essentially found similar findings, some very early cost savings, but not dramatic and not sustained, and, and little evidence to support a strong improvement in quality through quality measurement. This paper is a little bit more hopeful. So this is a systematic review of sort of data from accountable care organizations up through 2017. It was published in Medical Care Research and Review. And these authors did actually find some improvement in emergency room use and some improvement in hospitalization rates, as well as some improvement in, in the care of individuals with chronic conditions. So I think we can remain hopeful that we may continue to see some improvement in quality as we focus on these areas. I don't think we can be hopeful that we're seeing improvement to the tune of upwards of $15 billion based on our initial efforts. So we really need to start paying attention to how much money we're spending on measurement and how much, how much it's getting us back in terms of quality and cost. So how are clinicians feeling about all of this? Uh, a lot of the early quality measurement work was done in adult populations. And so as pediatricians, I think we've been a little bit more sheltered from this because the work is lagging behind a little bit in pediatrics. Uh, but generally, there are some negative feelings on the part of clinicians about kind of the chaos associated with quality measurement right now and the amount of work people are putting into gathering this data. So this was an article that was in a healthcare blog outlining physician frustration and fear of macro, which is a piece of legislation tied to value-based payment programs. 
There's uh, been some reports on the amount of time practices are spending reporting on quality measures. And so here on the right, you see um, clinical staff, not non-physician clinical staff in the green and then physician clinical staff in the blue across different specialties. And so lots of time being spent on documenting information that goes towards quality, quality um, measurement. And then again, as I said in the beginning, I think a lot of clinicians are feeling like we're spending a lot of time doing this, but we're really not getting the information back, and we still don't understand our own performance. I read a really funny blog post from a pediatrician who was scoring, found out they were scoring exceptionally well on their quality measurement, and that they had referred 100% of their eligible patients for mammography. And the person sort of scratched their head and said, I've never referred a patient for mammography. Um, and so there are a lot of problems with defining patient panels and with sort of getting this data right because it is such a complex process. So I think overall, for those who are really enmeshed in this and in practices that are heavily engaged in quality measurement, there are some negative sentiments. So in theory, this should work. In theory, if we're able to measure healthcare, then we'll find out what we're doing well, find out what we're not doing well, and then we can improve. So what is happening? First of all, there are too many measures, and we'll talk more specifically about numbers of measures that are out there in a few minutes, um, but there are a lot, and they cost a lot of money to develop and a lot of money to track, as I've sort of already suggested from that health affairs blog post. <clears throat> the development is not well coordinated, so there are multiple organizations collecting data. Some are collecting the same data, some are collecting different data. Some people are trying to measure the same thing in different ways. So the best example we found of that looking at the pediatric measures was um, asthma controller medication. So we found, I think, five or six measures devoted to the use of controller medications in asthma, and they all had slightly different numerators and slightly different denominators. So people are gathering data in different ways to answer the same question. And then we've had a really rapid development without pausing to say, how well is this working, and is this really the right thing to be doing, and how can we improve upon this? So unfortunately, measurement really has not proven to translate into change at this point in time. Again, there's this heavy focus on reporting. There's less focus on quality improvement. So our professional organizations set up um, MOC so that we all have to do MOC. I think for a lot of people, that becomes a little bit of a box-checking activity, and it is really hard to get clinicians engaged in quality improvement work on top of their sort of day-to-day -day clinical work. Again, providers are often really not aware of how they're doing, and if the whole idea of this is that understanding how you're doing will motivate change, then that piece is really, really important. And then healthcare is really complex, and these individual measures may not adequately be able to capture all the care that we're delivering. So that's sort of a general overview of where we are right now, but what is happening in pediatrics? And as I just said, a lot of the work in pediatrics has lagged behind what's happening in adult populations. Um, and there are some sort of very unique issues that, that uh, are important in quality, quality measurement in pediatrics. So first of all, we have less funding to do this kind of work. And there has been a lesser national focus on pediatric quality measurement because kids don't cost as much money as adults. So um, in general, people are not as focused on this. That might be a good thing, given the amount of money I said we're spending on this to date, but it, it has led to a little bit of a lesser focus in our population. 
we have a low prevalence of disease and we don't see a lot of bad outcomes. And so that's really good. That's why we practice pediatrics. We like this about our patients, but it's really hard to measure healthcare in an overall sort of healthy population. We've talked at several recent grand rounds about how to define health. And I think that's a really challenging question and it's also very hard to measure. There's a thinner evidence base upon which to build measures, so we don't have as much evidence as adult populations do in terms of sort of evidence-based care and guidelines, and so a little bit less to, to develop measures from. Data can be difficult to come by, so Medicare serves as a really nice source of data for adult populations. Medicaid is run by individual states, and lots of kids are insured by private insurance by private, private insurers, so it can be challenging to have kind of a cohesive data set to work with. And kids are often subject to the extrapolation of adult <coughs> measures. So in pediatrics, we talk a lot about how uh, kids are not just little adults, right? And I think um, some of the people who have developed measures have forgotten that fact. One of the measures we talk about a lot is hospital readmissions, which is a measure that in, in, in adult populations has been really focused on for many years, and there's been a lot of work to figure out what readmissions should be preventable. We really don't know what pediatric readmissions are preventable at this point, and so holding pediatric populations to the same standard that you hold adult populations to is probably not the right way to go, and there's a lot of other measures where benchmarks are used from adult populations that really may not apply appropriately to kids. So we, Sean primarily, had this idea to sort of put some energy into trying to figure out what we actually are measuring in pediatrics. And again, you know, everybody's sort of scratching their head going, I know we're measuring a lot of stuff, but I really don't know exactly what it is. We wanted to figure out where, where the focus was in pediatrics. And Eric and Alan are other hospitalists interested in health services, Eric at the University of Utah and Alan at Stanford. Um, and so we sort of got together to do a, a quantitative analysis of what's out there in terms of pediatric quality measures. Our specific aims in doing this were to identify and classify nationally promoted quality metrics that are applicable to kids and to analyze the representation of common pediatric issues among available measures. Uh, determining what a nationally promoted quality measure is was challenging, and so there are a lot of measure sets available out there. We focused very specifically on large national organizations that pub publish measures that are applicable to all pediatric populations. There are a lot of individual societies and um, sort of diseased disease-focused organizations that publish quality measures. So the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is a good example of that. Improved Care Now for Inflammatory Bowel Disease, the Vermont Oxford Network. Those are all big organizations that, public measure, that publish measures that you won't see listed here because they're really not at this level of sort of a national organization. So keep that in mind as we sort of go through what we found. But I think mostly what that says is there are actually a lot more measures than are even represented here. So again, we, we sought to identify sort of national sets. We looked at national measure clearing houses, which exist, and then also talked to people who uh, are sort of considered experts in this field to make sure that we were being inclusive of all the right measure sets. We created a list of all the measures available through December 31st, 2015, and then kind of whittled down to pediatric measures, which I'll talk about. And then we classified measures by type and topic. 
So a little bit about what we found. Um, first of all, these are the measure sets that we ended up including in our analysis. And I know this slide is a little bit difficult to see, but you can see there are nine major organizations listed in the left-hand column here who publish measure sets that we included. Uh, some of these organizations, like CMS, for example, actually support multiple measure sets within their organization. So this is just to give you a sense of where we pulled from. We found 16, just over 1,600 measures in total. So these are nationally endorsed measures only, and these are all measures, but 1,600 is a lot. And so you start to get a sense of why it's so difficult to translate measurement into making sure everyone's getting reports on all these measures. That's a tremendous amount of data. We then made an effort to exclude adult measures, and this was not entirely straightforward, but we first made a list of conditions that we felt were really adult-specific conditions, so things like coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, COPD, some cancers, and we excluded measures that were related to those conditions. And then we also excluded measures that had specific age limits within their measure, so there are a lot that say that they apply mostly to people over the age of 18. This left us with 386 measures that were applicable to pediatrics. And it's important to say that we included measures that impact both adult and pediatric populations. So things like lower respiratory infection, asthma, otitis media, certainly impact, again, adults and kids, but are prevalent among pediatric populations. There are other conditions like HIV, for example, that we see in pediatrics, but really primarily or sort of more heavily impact adult populations. We included both of those. So you'll see that there's a little bit, there are some measures that probably do have a little bit more adult leaning. And then we excluded duplicate measures, so measures that were the same measure but represented across different measure sets and came up with 257 unique measures. And most of the rest of the analysis will focus on adult, uh, on, sorry, unique measures. Um, we did sort of do some sub-analysis of the measures that were repeated multi over, over multiple sets, uh, and I won't get into that in depth today. So the first thing that we did was to classify measures based on the Donabedian framework. And I mentioned Avedis Donabedian earlier in the talk. And the framework that he set up for quality measurement involved these three types of measures. So first of all, structural measures, which are sort of stable elements of a healthcare system or healthcare infrastructure. This would be things like nursing ratios or electronic medical record platforms, things that sort of don't change necessarily over time and are fixed components of a system. Process measures are actions that are taken or things that we do to our patients. And so um, we'll talk through several examples of process measures, but I already mentioned LDL testing. That's something that we do to our patients. That's an example of a process measure. And then outcome measures are a little easier to understand. Those are end results. So things like mortality or hospital acquired conditions or other sort of end results of the healthcare system. Um, outcome measures also include patient satisfaction, which is largely, largely seen as an outcome of the healthcare system. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So to start out, what did we find in terms of these three types of measures? I'll just sort of draw your attention over here to the right-hand column where you see total measures within each category and percentage. And the majority of measures that we found, about 60% were process measures. This is just a similar visual display. Again, an abundance of process measure, measures with fewer outcome measures, and then um, really not very many structural measures. And we won't get into those too much today because they tend to be fairly rare. 
So why do we care about this? Uh, this seems like sort of, uh, might seem like kind of an arbitrary system, but there's actually important characteristics of each of these measure types that tell us a little bit about kind of the way to use these measures. So process measures in particular can be used to make rapid improvement because it takes a long time to measure outcomes. So a lot of the bad things that happen to kids really don't happen until they become adults. And so measuring that is not a good way to adjust healthcare during the pediatric time period. They're very specific to an actionable target. So when we think about outcome measures, they usually happen as a result of a multifactorial process. If we know that one center is struggling with higher mortality rates, we can take a closer look at that center and try to figure out why that's happening, but it doesn't direct us to an individual process where process measures do accomplish that. But there are some downsides to measuring processes, and the big one is that compliance with process measures is not always linked to any change in outcomes. And so I alluded to that a little bit with the LDL example. Uh, as we look through the process measures in pediatrics, there were some that have been really well linked to improve, improved outcomes and others that have not been so tightly linked to improved outcomes. So a couple that we thought were fairly evidence-based, first of all, the administration of vaccines. We know that vaccines can pre prevent bad things, um, and, and largely we have a big body of evidence to support that, and, and we all sort of believe scientifically that vaccines are very important. Uh, it's worth mentioning that it was actually a challenge to find a second example of a process measure that was really well supported by the pediatric evidence base. Um, this one, I think, actually is pretty well supported, which is the use of topical fluoride, so fluoride varnish, to prevent dental decay in kids who are at risk. Um, a couple of examples of poorly evidence-based process measures. So one is documentation of body mass index. And I am really supportive of everyone who's doing obesity work. Obesity is a big problem that we do need to be paying a lot of attention to, so I don't want to downplay that. But we have not been able to support through any literature that documenting body mass index actually makes a change in body mass index down the line. And there's actually several papers that would suggest that it doesn't make any difference. Um, I think those of you in day-to-day -day clinical practice have you know, understand that EMR has a smart phrase usually that, that puts the body mass index into your notes so that you can make sure it's there. But unfortunately, we don't usually have 30 minutes to counsel our patients about their body mass index once we find out that it's abnormal. And even if we do, there's a lot of social determinants of health that come into play in terms of sort of improving this problem. So really complex and the simple documentation of BMI does not necessarily, again, lead to improved outcomes. Another one that's sort of interesting is blood cultures for community-acquired pneumonia. So there's a really growing, a, a pretty rapidly growing body of evidence to suggest that in kids with garden variety community-acquired pneumonia, getting a blood culture is not helpful and in many cases may actually be harmful due to the high rates of false positive blood cultures and then kids ending up on sort of multiple or broader spectrum antibiotics related to their blood culture. This is an example of a measure that's probably lagging behind the evidence, and with 1,600 measures to keep track of, you can see that it's probably difficult to make sure annually or with some sort of semi-regularity that we're updating measures and making sure that they're grounded in the most recent evidence. And then we come to outcome measures. So again, I mentioned these take time to gather and bad outcomes are rare in pediatrics. So in the adult population, measuring things like heart attacks and obesity and coronary artery disease and mortality is a little more meaningful because those things happen with more frequency than they do in pediatrics. 
Of the outcome measures we identified, almost half were related to hospital-acquired conditions, surgical problems, or mortality. These are obviously really important things to be focused on and measuring, but it's important to note that not half of our pediatric population will have contact with a hospital or a surgeon. And so, um, again, in a healthy population, what outcomes do we focus on? About 5% of the measures we found related to patient satisfaction, and this is really interesting. So there's a, a growing interest in using patient satisfaction data to try to change our practice. And I would just uh, point out quickly that patient satisfaction doesn't necessarily always correlate to improved health outcomes. This is a study that was published in 2012 um, looking at sort of correlations between patient satisfaction and health outcomes. And higher levels of patient satisfaction led to lower odds of emergency visits, which is good. We can get behind that. We don't want our patients in the emergency room. Higher odds of inpatient admissions, greater expenditures, and higher mortality. So as we're thinking about how to use patient satisfaction data, I think we've got to be careful about you know, majorly altering our practices to get better scores on patient satisfaction if at the end of the day it might mean that people are actually getting worse health care. And then we also found three measures related to the social determinants of health. And this is another really interesting sort of topic and deba debate among people who are interested in quality measurement. Social determinants of health are obviously very important to childhood health. And these are some examples of the measures we found related to social determinants of health. But it's not really clear that we should be measuring these as part of healthcare delivery because there's a lot of question as to whether clinicians actually have the capability to impact these things for our patients. And if we're getting paid for how many of our kids are exposed to secondhand smoke or live in communities that are perceived as safe, we may actually discourage people from practicing in high-risk populations. So this is really kind of a double-edged sword, and there's a lot of people thinking about what agencies should be looking at the social determinants of health and how that should fit in with the sort of overall measurement of healthcare quality. So after that initial classification, we moved on to classifying by overuse, underuse, and misuse for process measures. So overuse measures are measures that encourage us to do less for our patients, and underuse measures encourage us to do more for our patients. Misuse encourages sort of different behaviors. And then um, further by content area. So this is the underuse, overuse, and misuse data. Uh, and that's a little bit hard to see, so again, we'll sort of move on to this visual representation, which shows us that almost 80% of measures were telling us to do more things for our patients or to our patients. Uh, and that, I think many of you are familiar with the 20-minute office visit and 19 things that you're supposed to be doing as you go through that office visit, and this would support that, that most of our quality measurement efforts have been getting us to do more things. Fewer relate to underuse, and then, and then again, fewer related to misuse. In terms of measures that encourage us to do less, the abundance were an abundance were related to avoiding radiologic procedures that were unnecessary and avoidance of unnecessary medications. We found more measures targeting uh, overuse than have been found previously in similar adult studies. So we're hopeful that that means in pediatrics we're actually starting to pay attention to this problem. It may also represent some secular trends over time, showing that over time this is becoming an area of more interest. And so why does this matter? This is from an article published in JAMA in 2012 looking at overuse in healthcare. So first of all, overuse is defined as care in which potential harms outweigh potential benefits. 
It's thought to, at this point, account for probably about 30% of healthcare costs, although estimates have ranged from 20% all the way up to nearing 50%. So these are things that we're doing that don't need to be done and actually have the potential to be harmful. And we tend to focus a lot on things that we're measuring. And so if we're measuring a lot of underuse, then there's gonna be a lot of focus and funding targeting underuse. And I think this is an area that, um, that we may not sort of dedicate as many resources to if it's not prominent in our measurement structure. So we also did a pretty complex analysis of measures by content area that I won't get into in too much detail, but I think just to give you sort of a general overview, almost 40% of the measures we found were related to a specific condition. About a quarter of our overall measures were related to hospitalizations or surgeries. A lot of those were overuse measures, as we sort of talked about on the couple slides ago. Um, and again, probably not a quarter of our kids are having access or exposure to hospitalizations or surgeries, and then about 9% of measures related to general preventive care. These are the conditions, and this, this is also pretty hard to see, but the top conditions we found represented among all the measures were depression, asthma, and dental health. I think we thought that was pretty good. Those are important conditions for kids, and it was nice to see those well represented. Interestingly, way down here, you see I can't hold on um, ADHD with one measure that was seen in four different measure sets. And, and what's interesting about that is ADHD has a prevalence that's probably pretty similar to asthma, um, depending on your populations. And so it's very hard for us to make conclusions. I don't wanna say that we think that ADHD should have 10 measures associated with it or 12 measures, because ultimately I think we need to be refining these a little bit. But we thought it was important just to give people a general sense of, of what's out there and where the focus is. Some specifics that we found were missing, and these are sort of um, kind of from our own bias, I would say, but these are things that we thought were important that we didn't find among the available pediatric quality measures. First of all, the AAP has a Choosing Wisely campaign that targets behaviors that are mostly overuse behaviors to try to eradicate unnecessary care. There are 15 measures between the pediatric and neonatal set, and we found only one of those measures to be represented in national quality metrics, and it was um, use of cold medications for kids. There are a dearth of measures addressing medically complex children. This is an area of very active research right now, so we're seeing the development of more of these measures. But these, are, these kids are an increasing pop percentage of our pediatric population, both on the inpatient and outpatient side, so I think this is an important area of focus. Very few dedicated to injury, which is a leading cause of death in children. And again, um, a lot of injury prevention stuff may relate to the social determinants of health, and that's a complex complex part of this whole picture is how to make that work, and, and we've sort of already covered this, the, the question about social determinants of health. So our conclusions from that analysis were that there are a lot of measures, probably too many measures. 25% of all measures are applicable to pediatrics. We found an abundance of process measures geared mostly toward underuse, so telling us to do more things, and we felt like we probably have room to improve. So that leads us to Berwick's third era of healthcare, which I have labeled as improvement. Um, and in this article, Don Berwick 
sets out nine different steps that he thinks can help to improve where we are right now in healthcare. Not all are relevant to quality measurement, so I've picked out a few that are. But first of all, he calls for a reduction in the volume and cost of measurement by 75% over six years. So that is not a minor reduction. Um, and I think really gets at how, how big and unwieldy this system of quality measurement has become and really promotes focusing on this as a, a learning point as opposed to sort of an individual um, stick and carrot type model. He gets to that a little bit more directly here when he says stop complex individual incentives. They're confusing, unstable, and invite gaming. This issue of gaming and quality measurement is a really interesting one, and there's another whole body of literature on how people are changing their practice to kind of game the quality measurement system. One example that's pretty well reported on is the issue of catheter-acquired urinary tract infection, or CAUTI. So that measure is usually, the numerator is number of infections, and the denominator is catheter days. And there have been reports of hospitals actually leaving catheters in longer to try to improve their performance on that particular measure. I think we'd like to think that not a lot of physicians are engaging in unethical practice like that. But what I think we can all sort of see as a realistic trend is people doing minor things like changing a diagnostic code if it's going to impact the way that their performance is going to look. So for example, if there are markers that discourage the use of antibiotics for respiratory tract infection that we think is viral, it's likely that we'll see more diagnoses of bacterial pneumonia to support the use of antibiotics. And that's really not what the system is, is designed to do. Um, and so in, in making value-based payments something that really only impacts large organizations, Berwick feels like we may actually be able to avoid some of that kind of personal incentive to change to change your numbers. And then we need more focus on improvement science. So we can't get this better unless we can move towards actually using quality improvement a lot to fix these things that we're finding are wrong. And I think that's really the focus of probably the next decade. Uh, this is a policy statement that came out last year by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I, I don't have time to get into much of it, but I would say if you're interested in this topic at all, take a read. It, it's a nice overview. It's also called A New Era in Quality Measurement, so it fits nicely with the Berwick model. And what the AAP proposes specific to pediatrics is that we continue to focus on systems to develop and monitor quality measures to not only make sure that we're developing evidence-based me based measures, but keeping up with the evidence over time to ensure, again, that the development process is really reliant upon existing evidence. I think in a lot of cases, we made measures that seemed like a good idea, and we just haven't really been able to say that they actually are a good idea, and so to be more thoughtful as we are developing new measures. Limit the generalization of adult measures and invest in quality improvement. And so then I recommend, um, similar to the AAP and similar to what Dr. Berwick has to say, but just some other things that I think are really important, we need to reduce the number of overall measures, I agree, and, and improve alignment. So I don't, you know, I don't know that nine different organizations need, need to be measuring quality in teens of different measure sets across the country. I think we could do a better job of aligning our efforts so that we're not submitting data to lots of different places. Take advantage of technology. I have to do this. So Keith talked about robots last week in his talk, and all week I've been thinking about what we can do with robots. Um, but I think you're, 
Keith's point last week was that every other sort of organization or field has really been able to harness the power of technology, and we haven't done that in medicine. So we have these really complex EMR systems that are not pulling data in a way that is usable at all, and so we've got to be thinking a little bit more about how we can use technology. Uh, standardized Medicaid priorities and reporting systems. So these tend to differ by state, and I think if we could get a little bit more on the same page about some some areas of focus that we all care about and then have a little more flexibility to do smaller measuring at the state level, that's important, as opposed to everybody just kind of doing their own thing. And then improve information delivery to providers, and I think that's a really key part of all of this. So uh, just some resources if you are interested in this. Again, the AAP policy statement I think is helpful. The New Hampshire Medicaid QI website talks about what our statewide priorities are, and so that's worth checking out. Um, the ARC Quality Measure Clearinghouse, if you feel like diving into it, will give you a sense of what some of these 1,600 measures are. It's a long read, the clearinghouse, I would say, but if you're interested, you can get a little bit of a better feel. And our paper does actually, in the supplemental materials, lay out what all the measures we found in pediatrics were. So that's it. Thank you. I guess I'll take questions, but I don't have very much time. Shalene's not here, so I think we're done. not here, so That was a great presentation. I learned a lot, so thank you. Uh, one thing I would ask about the uh, uh, satisfaction measure, which I take it in our case was the parent satisfaction measure. The interpretation that the more satisfied they are, the worse, higher mortality, worse outcomes. Well, looking at that from a PICU perspective, we found when we looked at this that our sickest patients and the patients who did worse, we had a lot of satisfaction on the part of the parents. And it doesn't mean that because they were satisfied that patients did worse. It's just the sicker they were, we bonded with the parents, we did a good job, they were satisfied with what we did, even though they didn't get the outcome they would have preferred. So there's an interpretation issue there, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, and, and I can't in any way say that there's sort of a clear causal pathway there. I think on the flip side of that, one of the things we find among kids who perhaps are not critically ill or are just generally healthy, is that there continues to be a perception, particularly in the U.S., that more care is better care or is the right care. And I think we this comes up in Grand Rounds a lot, that we feel pressure from families to do more than we think is necessary in a lot of situations. And I think, so the flip side of that argument, and, and we don't know what the right answer is here, but the flip side of that is that the families who are dissatisfied are sometimes dissatisfied because we weren't willing to order the test or prescribe the medicine that we didn't feel was the right treatment, and there there's still sort of, again, this societal perception that we should be doing those things and that, that not doing things sometimes leads to dissatisfaction. That is, uh, I, Sean, actually, well, that's, that's adult that data. Um, I think there are adjustments for severity of illness built into that particular study. And it's compl I mean, it's much, it's much more complex than just more satisfied people die. Right. You know? I mean, <laughs> the risk of death is, is an adjustment. And so... And that literature is exceptionally complex, and there are definitely competing interpretations um, out there um, in the literature. Kathy? Um, Sam, that was a fantastic talk. I really appreciate it. And as an outpatient doc, I really appreciate you noting that most kids do not actually come to see you in the hospital setting. 
and that the two things that are evidence-based are things under my domain, immunizations and prevention of dental caries. And the three top diagnoses that you had were all under outpatient domains as well. But I am, I'm not very facile in this, um, in this area of research, but it seems like most of the research is coming out of hospitalist-based groups for things that are easier to measure x-rays, labs, things like that. I'm wondering if you see, kind of in that higher level research world, whether or not the outpatient docs are taking this on and primary care is taking this on. Because I, you and I talked yesterday. I'm feeling frustrated with the quality measures that I get. My immunization rates, I know, are higher than what DH is reporting. And the data is not clean, and it's not good. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and, and I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think a lot of the interest in this, again, is at a higher level and people who are really involved in administrative roles and policy-related roles. I know that when we go to national meetings, there's often actually a lot of talk about this. What should our hospitalist metrics be? How do we make sure these are the right measures? Um, I go to the AAP meeting regularly. I probably don't go to the same sessions that others in the room are going to. I don't know if there's as much buzz about this on the primary care level. And, and I think what you said is really important that we what we do is measure what's easy to measure. And again, this concept of the fact that a lot of the kids you care for don't have severe health problems. Some of them do, but some of them you're seeing for routine care and thinking about what is meaningful to measure among that population is a really, really challenging question. So that's not really an answer to your question, but I don't know the actual answer. <laughs>